Hi, I'm Dr. Paula Redmond, a clinical psychologist, and you're listening to the When Work Hurts podcast. On this show, I want to explore the stories behind the statistics of the mental health crisis facing healthcare professionals today, and to provide hope for a way out through compassion, connection, and creativity. Join me as I talk to inspiring clinicians and thought leaders in healthcare about their unique insights and learn how we can support ourselves and each other when work hurts. This week, I'm talking about a tough subject, the impact of patient and colleague suicide on clinicians. We do obviously talk about suicide throughout the episode and feelings around it. So if this is something that might be tricky for you, do just take care of yourself. To explore this issue, I spoke to Dr. Rachel Gibbons, who is a consultant psychiatrist, psychoanalyst and group analyst, who has a special interest in the field of suicide. She has a range of leadership positions at the Royal College of Psychiatry, including being chair of the working group on the effect of suicide and homicide on clinicians, being co-chair of the patient safety group and vice chair of the psychotherapy faculty. I started by asking her how she came to be involved in this line of work. I'm a doctor, so I was a mature medical student. And in my training, I didn't know what type of medicine I wanted to do until I did psychiatry. And then the first day I, th- I was asked to sit down and, you know, I've been on ward rounds in medicine. And, it, and they said, oh, watch out for Mary Robertson. Her ward round goes on for about... 12 hours and I was thinking oh no I'm gonna have to stand up walk around I had this idea of what a wardrobe was and then in the first day of psychiatry I was ushered into a a room to sit down given a pot of tea and then we spent the whole day discussing patients seeing patients thinking about the dynamics of their families and I thought within that first day this is the most fantastic job I can't believe there is a job as wonderful as this and that stayed uh, absolutely from that moment on I was totally determined committed to being a psychiatrist Um, and it stayed in my mind and it still is the most fantastic job if you're interested I'm sure that's probably true of all different branches of medicine isn't it if if you follow your heart then it's the most fantastic job ever and for me that was psychiatry so I was a mature student and what I did is I dual trained in psychiatry adult psychiatry and adult psychotherapy so it took me quite a long time I was a mature student anyway So it came to me becoming a consultant in 2008 after an awful lot of training. I was looking forward to it with my heart and soul, I think. It would be fair to say. I I was very ready for it. I got a job. It was a a very competitive time for consultant roles. I, I fought very hard to get a job that I really wanted in an environment, a mental health organization where I had trained and I loved the, you know, my people, you know, the colleagues that I trained with, but also people that trained me. And I was so delighted to get, felt a bit like joining a family, you know, in a way. I was so pleased. And it was an inpatient consultant job. Um, and I landed on the, on the first day. Now, it gave me a big lesson in what it means to become a consultant. Because on my first day of being a consultant, I landed in this new job. And I arrived to the introduction to be introduced to be told, oh, you do know we're closing, don't you? <laughs> so it was one of those. It was it was just the start of the, the bed reductions within psychiatry where they reduced 30 percent of the beds over yeah, over a few years. It was just the start of that. And the inpatient unit I joined was 
going to close and that was how I found out. So I started as a consultant psychiatrist and I hoped that I was going to bring something, you know, all the training I'd done that I was going to bring something good and and, uh, that would help people. But on the second week, my second week as a consultant, my first patient died by suicide um, of a patient that uh, had been on the ward. And, and I, you know, you, you claim this and I discharged from the ward. Um, and then my third week, my second patient died by suicide. And then I was, everything was gone. Uh, and I was drowning at that point. Apart from, I don't think you'd have known I was drowning. If you'd have seen me, I don't know whether you'd have known that I was drowning. I, I can recognise it in other people's faces now. But at the time, I couldn't, I don't couldn't recognise it in myself. I knew there was something very wrong. Um, and did that happen immediately? Like in a shock way? In the moment I heard about the first death, in the moment, it was something in me was annihilated. Something was just killed, gone, wiped out, devastated. It's, I think there's something both about the shock, but there's something also about coming up against suicide, really coming up against suicide. And what that means, that is so shocking and disturbing and puts you up against something about life you really don't want to know about. You sort of do know somewhere about it because it's. I think there's some some way when we hear about suicide, there is some part of us that recognises something. But I think, um, so there's some part of you know, there's another part of you that really, really doesn't know something and suicide tells you it within a moment. So yes, I think something changed within hearing about the first death, but the second death just came on top of it and just absolutely sort of thought, yeah, there you go. Absolutely, this is the way it is. And what about the kind of organisational response to that what what part did that play well i'm just just to add to it a bit is, is i had another um so i had those two deaths was drowning just starting to emerge a bit and then i had another inpatient death a few months later um so in that first year we had i had three deaths three serious incident inquiries and three coroners court um you know uh visits if you like um, and I, I don't know quite how to put words to the organisational response. I think, you know, what I can, because you're in such a sort of shocked state yourself, it's very difficult to objectively assess what the organisational response was, but certainly what my experience was of the organisational response compounding the difficulty um, and feeling very much like I was being on trial, certainly in the coroner's court, but actually in, the, in a way the coroner's court was less like that than the internal inquiries. Um, and there was one in particular for the inpatient death, which really was very difficult indeed. So, um, and, and I think the thing is you're, at, you know, particularly at that stage of career, you're very uh, connected to your organisation. You sort of imagine it's going to look after you. <laughs> You sort of, and I think we all still are, aren't we? Whenever we're, we're function within an organisation, we have expectations that our organisation is going to be a bit paternal or maternal to us and look after us, which is not the case. And in a way, I got that shocking experience of that not being the case. A bit like finding out about the suicides, suddenly feeling totally abandoned by the organisation and, and, the, and the awareness that actually 
there isn't someone looking out for me in this sort of wider organisational maternal paternal way that actually there's a sort of ruthlessness here maybe about life altogether um, that gets magnified by the organisational response. So that was also devastating. And it was, I think also what was very difficult about it was that after a suicide, I think it's very common to feel shame, humiliation, isolation. So when you're going through these organisational processes, you, you, you feel in that position, that sort of guilty, ashamed position and sort of feel you deserve to be punished in some way, which certainly doesn't help. And I think by the end of the third one, I was probably going a little, uh, I was probably a little unhinged, actually. And would you, would you understand that um, in relation to trauma, your, your kind of own trauma response? I, I, undoubtedly, looking back, I know that I had a post-traumatic stress disorder. I know that I did, and I know that I was living it inside it. And I still have it, I can still feel it, and I can still see it in other people. But I think... In reality, this is what I think, in the health service, I think we're so traumatised and I think the people that often work within the health services are functioning in within um, post-traumatic stress disorders. Uh, and we're all triggering each other and there's a sort of... Um, in which, and, and then the, the whole nature of it becomes normalised. It becomes culturalised to be traumatised. And how do you think that shows up? Uh, well, I, well, I think within the health service it shows up to do with sadomasochism. Actually, I think I think that that it becomes, you know, the sort of brutalisation of the environment is a result of trauma, which I think there is in, in, in the health environment at the moment, certainly the NHS health environment, but not just that. And by sadomasochism, do you mean the kind of patterns of behaviours that we might get into that, you know, are continuing to hurt us? It becomes yeah. normalised and it becomes extremely difficult. The opposite to kindness and compassion. Um, it's, it becomes normalised to relate to each other in a, um, so it's more than aggressive ways. I mean, in a way, there's nothing wrong with aggression. It's not that. It's, it's what people talk about, about bullying. It's, it's the idea, you know, I, I, I don't quite buy into bullying because bullying implies there's one victim and one aggressor. And with sadomasochism, the, the, the nature of describing it like that is that it's a two-player game. You can't have a sadist without having a masochist and a masochist will be a sadist in a different situation. And we all behave like that. If we get become overwhelmed with anxiety and stress, we can't be kind or compassionate. And actually what we do is we project into other people and we can all be sort of cruel, thoughtless, you know, dismissive, contemptuous. So, yes, I mean, in a way, that's the heart of a lot of the work that I've been doing in different settings is trying to get to the heart of the trauma with the idea that if we can address this, acknowledge it and address it, um, then it can relieve some of that disturbance within the whole system. That if we don't address it, if we keep on denial, when I started working on suicide, so what, so what happened to me is I was absolutely devastated and managed to get together. Nobody talked about suicide at that point. I got together with um, a couple of colleagues and we asked Rob Hale, who was the director of the Portman and had a big interest in suicide to come and join us and we formed a group. And we met monthly to work through this and to talk about it, to reflect on it um, and found that actually by doing that, we started to recover ourselves, you know. But the trouble was at that time, nobody talked about suicide. So this was something we could do. We had to do it secretly, really, then. But other people didn't have access to this. This wasn't something that was widely available. So what then happened is everybody just 
or everybody's trauma just stays under the surface and is just still there. So nobody talked about suicide, nobody talked about the trauma of a patient's suicide on them at that point. And the whole nature of what I'm trying to do, or the movement towards, is if we can talk about it, if we can acknowledge this, we can start to, to mitigate, transform this post-traumatic stress disorder that a lot of us are struggling with into something creative. The idea of post-traumatic growth, that if we don't engage with our trauma, it becomes destructive to us, it triggers sadomasochism and disturbance in our systems. But if we can engage with it and work on it, it can become transformational and transform services. A bit like therapy, really. The whole idea of therapy is, is, the, same, is the same as that. You get transformation through trauma if you can engage with it, work on it, talk about it, engage with your feelings. But it's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do. What are the kind of particular issues around suicide that make it um, so traumatic and, and such a kind of tricky thing to... Um, oof, where to start with that one? I think the primary headline for me about suicide is to do... Well, there are other aspects to this, but is to do with that it occurs out of the blue. And in my experience, the research I've done and looking at everything, all the data, it really does occur out of the blue. So it's incredibly shocking loss event in itself, incredibly shocking loss event. Um, even if you don't know someone very closely, it's an incredibly shocking loss event. But if you do know someone and you have a love relationship with that person, it's, the, it's, it's a very profound, sudden, distressing loss event but then you're left with absolute uncertainty you do not know and cannot know why someone has died by suicide um, because they're not there to discuss it with you someone has gone the person who could at least involve in it get involved in a dialogue or discourse around what it why it happened isn't there and you are left in a in a place of unrelenting unremitting uncertainty which is not where human beings can tolerate being at all so we can't tolerate that. So what we do then is we create a narrative or in any situation where we're uncertain, we can't tolerate it. And what we'd like to do then or what we just do automatically is create a narrative to provide us with a story about why something's happened and then we can relax. Phew, I know now, even though that story is not based in any reality. So this happens with suicide. So suicide, very, very shocking really uh, profoundly uncertain. And I think that level of loss and uncertainty um, really sort of fragments, fractures our own mind. And in addition to that, it puts us up really hard against death and something about the reality of life, you know, that uh, it, it, something about what life means. And it's hard to put words into that, but a very, it hits us with a very, very deep philosophical question, <laughs> I think, suicide. So very hard to digest and compute and we then create a narrative now the trouble is what we do is we create a very simple narrative and I think this is true for clinicians families and friends bereaved it's, it's across the board what we then is we create a narrative and we create a very simple narrative and it's the same narrative all the time and we create it with ourselves as the protagonist we're, we're the main um, we're the star of the show in this narrative and we are to blame. We've done something. We'll, ha we'll have something in our mind that we're we've done. And it's all, our, it's all us. We've done this. If we'd have done something different, this wouldn't have happened. So at least we're not uncertain anymore. 
but then we're left in a terrible position of persecution where we feel we're responsible for someone else's death and to blame. I think in this state of mind, it's to blame rather than responsible, where we feel and, and actually can hold with absolute certainty that we're to blame for someone else's death, which is a terrible persecutory state. Better than being uncertain, because I think that leaves you in a fragmented place, but um, it's a sort of like an encapsulated delusional state um, and very, very unbearable. And it can take a long time. Um, you know, the trouble is if we really believe to a delusional level that we're to blame, then it makes it very difficult to talk to people about it. Because you, and you, and you see it because the groups that I'm, I run now, I'm involved in running, you can see that people don't want to say their, their narrative because they're sure that everybody will just say, oh my gosh, yes, it is you. That other people are going to believe it. So you best hide it and keep it to yourself. And so for, for families and friends, you know, it's an unbearable level of uncertainty, you know, that it's not a, almost barely survivable. You know, how do you make sense of it? And I think probably when people have got past the acute grieving, which some people never get past, but I think some people, when they do get past, they spend an awful lot of the time, maybe I spend an awful lot of my time, well, I do actually, thinking about why, why has this happened? what's led someone to do this um so that's actually where i spend a lot of my time thinking about that reading about that trying to understand that how can we understand that what what is the what is the data what does the literature say well what's very what's very interesting is there's very very little about the the underlying mental mechanisms about uh, that lead to suicide very very little and it's amazing that we tolerate it because I don't think, you know, it's, it's amazing that we tolerate it and don't comment on it. Where in other branches of science, you know, there's quite quite stringent rules that you try and um, prove the null hypothesis. You try and you look at the data and you try and prove the null hypothesis. It doesn't happen with suicide. People ignore the null hypothesis and they try and go straight to trying to prove what their fantasy is about it. Um, and they ignore all the data that says something diff different. Um, so I think the data that I have seen, been involved with, um, seems to indicate that it is incredibly difficult to predict any individual suicide. That this idea that we can tell, and it's so difficult to, to, to discuss this with people, particularly within mental health, but the data that I've seen to actually predict this live person sitting in front of me now, if I think about you, you know, let's say so this live person sitting in front of me now is going to go on and die by suicide. I don't think there is any evidence I've seen that that's possible. Um, and if we look at the risk assessment, the evidence around risk assessment tools, um, and let's just hold on to that a bit so that the majority of deaths by suicide do not happen within a mental health population. So over 70, 73% happen in the population who haven't been in contact with mental health services. And when we've looked at coroner's data, quite a lot of those have no known history of mental health problems at all. So we've got a whole, and it's very hard to keep that in mind that by far the majority have not been in contact with mental health services. So about 27, 28% have in the last year. And that includes things like IAPT. This includes, um, you know, all different levels of mental health. So I think we start having a fantasy of people on the wards or people in A&E, but it's not the case. Um, and so for, for those, that group that have been in touch with mental health services and have had a risk assessment, 
if you like, one of these risk assessments, 95% um, have rated them as low risk or no risk. Now, people, what people might say is, oh, we haven't got the right tools. But that is an example of the argument that I mean, rather than arguing the null hypothesis, which is actually maybe, could it be that that um, predicting individual suicide might be incredibly difficult, if not impossible? And to me, that makes sense with what I've been reading about suicide. So what I wanted to go on and say is that the only people that thought about the unconscious mental mechanisms are psychoanalysts. And the two that have written about it most recently are Don, um, Don Campbell and Rob Hale. So Rob Hale that was in our, our group, who've written a wonderful book called Working in the Dark, Understanding the Pre-Suicidal State of Mind. And they're really the only people who've tried to understand what leads someone to die by suicide. Um, and what what they say, and seems to be backed up with a lot of the data now, I think, you know, this is my interpretation of something, but, you know, and what I would say is for everybody with suicide, look at it yourself, you know, have a think about it yourself, is that suicide occurs in response to a loss event. So that what precedes many deaths by suicide, many, many, is some significant life event or some significant loss event. So it could be someone with no mental health history, significant loss event. And that could be weeks, it could be days, weeks, months, years even before someone dies. But let's say it's years, someone might say he never got over the death of his mother. So there's some sense that there's a, a loss event preceding it and that there's something about mourning, the inability to mourn that event, which leads to the death by suicide. The other thing to say about why I think it's hard, uh, hard, if not impossible, to predict is that suicide isn't acting out what's called acting out. So we all act out. So if I get stressed at work and come home and say, oh, I just need a drink, that's an acting out. So I'm doing something as a way of uh, sort of almost like as a first expression of a, of a feeling or emotion. And I might think, oh, I'm wanting a drink. Oh, I must be stressed. Do you know, by doing it, I know that I, I start to get some insight into the fact that I, I, I feel it. And this, I think, is the case with suicide. So that suicide is an acting out event. So people act out when they can't put their feelings into words. And often the first thing they might know about how desperate they're feeling is that they make a serious attempt on their life. And it's through the doing that we start to symbolise something. So this idea that people could come and tell us that they're suicidal in an active way, I'm not sure about that. I think maybe in many cases, the first the person themselves knows and anybody else knows that they're truly suicidal is that they make a serious attempt on their life. You've said that part of what goes on is an inability to mourn. Can you say a bit more about that? Mourning is a very big, you know, is a, is a major life task. You know, we spend quite a lot of our life mourning to, to separate, you know, to individuate, separate, become someone separate from our parents is a mourning process and quite a complex one, but it's also very dangerous. A lot of people know the Kubler-Ross sort of grief cycle about the different feelings that come after, after a loss event. So that the first would be denial, the next would be anger, then bargaining, and then sadness and then acceptance. So if we just take that as a very sort of relatively crude model of mourning, what we can see afterwards is there's a period of anger. Um, and in a way, having suicidal ideation is a very normal part of mourning you know and if and if we're truthful to ourselves about it that if we've suffered a significant loss event we might have fleeting suicidal thoughts 
And the bigger the loss event, the more traumatising, the more difficult, the more intense those thoughts might be because you might really think, I can't survive that. I mean, if I think if I lost my children, I think, you know, might not, might not want to carry on. Don't know that I'd survive that. So if we think about that, in a way, suicidal ideation is a normal part of mourning. So I think in these cases, you know, following these loss events, there's something that happens in the mourning cycle that that leads to this action, if you like, that the suicidal thoughts, there is a wish, wish I've got, I've just, I don't, can't mourn this, I've got to get away from it. Mourning's very, very painful. Very, very painful. I'm interested in, in what you were saying about, um, you know, mental health services. And I guess if, if you work in mental health services, it often feels like your your one aim is to prevent suicide, that, you know, things are really set up, you know, <laughs> nothing else matters as long as you've done the risk assessment. Which is part of, um, the, which is part of the sadomasochistic environment. Mm, because it's not, mm. to me, that doesn't feel right at all. Because in a way, in, in all health environments, our role is to care. And for me, it's, caring isn't pre- predicting and preventing suicide. It's about engaging in a therapeutic, caring, c- compassionate, containing way with somebody that might then allow them to uh, allow some facilitation of them moving through whatever this painful place is that they are, they're in. Um, and if we think about physical medicine... Um, rather than psychological uh, you know there's a significant proportion of people that die by suicide have got serious physical health problems uh, and not serious mental health problems but yet people who work within physical health environments don't see it as their job to predict and prevent suicide in some ways I think it is a bit of disturbance of our current system that that's what we're focused on and and I think that takes away from compassionate engagement and thinking that our primary task is compassionate engagement in a therapeutic way. And if we can do that, it's very likely to prevent suicide. You know, if we can help people put their feelings into words, help them with their distress, their losses, um, then it's very likely to prevent suicide. But chasing after, are you going to kill yourself? Please reassure yourself. I mean, that's driven, I think, the whole thing of predicting and preventing suicide is driven by our own fear of, our, of what's going to happen to us. We're terrified. We're, we're functioning in a post-traumatised state where we are terrified. And all sorts of things go on in terms of, you know, thresholds being set for services around risk and suicide risk and, and you know, people not being able to access help unless they are at risk of, of self-harm or, or suicide. And, um, yeah, it's... Yes, it, it, when, it hurts you know, when you your step head. Back think about yeah, it, it hurts it's, your it's head. a nightmare. Yes. It's it actually a nightmare. It hurts your head, doesn't it? Really, you know that people feel trapped in a in a in a sort of unbearable place, um, which they sort of know and can recognise as not being a sane place to be in, but yet the route out isn't visible. That's so interesting because I guess those words could apply to patients and professionals too, in terms of our how we relate to work um well that was that i was just associating to someone presenting about um i think during the pandemic there was a group who set up um, a sort of staff um mental health service you know and and had, had mental health staff were referred to this mental health service and they were found to have 
secondary level mental health problems. Many more were referred than they were expecting. And what they found is the staff had as serious mental health problems as the patients that they were treating. So it's interesting, our picture of the division, isn't it, really? So that brings me on to my next kind of question about colleague suicide and, you know, the the, the impact that that has on us. Because I think, you know, doctors, you know, health professionals are... um, I think there's a a kind of accepted understanding that, that doctors are at higher risk of suicide than the general population. But I'm not sure... If that's accurate. I think the, the data changes quite a bit. And, you know, which general population are you thinking about? I mean, I think there are different pockets of, uh, you know, different professions with different risks. I think, the, and the colleagues that I'm, that come to my mind are doctors, but not just doctors. They're nurses. The, the people that I've seen who've died by suicide are across the spectrum of mental health. Um, and I think there's a profound effect. I think there can be even, in a way, an even greater silencing struggle with a colleague's suicide and the, because of the guilt the guilt and sense of responsibility and sense of shame. It can be more... I don't know, it's, like an, it's not, not a hierarchy of pain, but can be harder to, um, to mourn or engage with. And, it, and I think the organisation itself, which can function as a sort of system can feel more guilty and therefore find it even harder to actually put in support. But I, I think a lot of the principles are similar as it as as with um, struggling with a family, who, a friend who died by suicide or a patient. What I just want to say is what's very interesting is when I go and talk about suicide, I'll ask people within the audience to put up their hand if they've had um, a, a clinical audience if they have had experience personally of suicide and at least a half or two-thirds have put up their hand. So I think this division between clinicians, we, we are clinicians and we have patient suicides and then there are family members and friends is an artificial one. We are family and friends and suicide affects everybody. So I don't want to sort of, um, you know, I, I, what, I, what I would like to do with a colleague's suicide is put that right up there as well. <laughs> Uh, as something we need to think about and not hugely separate it one way or another. Yeah, yeah. And interesting to think about how suicides, um, I guess, within families can cast a very long shadow, you know, multi-generational kind of shadow. And and I've certainly experienced that in relation to colleague suicide um, in, you know, a couple of places that I've worked at where I didn't know the person, but it's around and it can be, you know, felt years later but it's it's felt years later because it hasn't been engaged with unconsciously consciously if you don't engage with it consciously it gets expressed unconsciously in it in it become it's dangerous you know i i do talks about that that actually you know is that reflecting reflecting and reflective practice is a life or death issue <laughs> that actually it's a very serious issue if we don't engage and think and try and process what we'll do is reenact things and it will come back and it will come back in a disturbed way. So there was um, one case where there was um, a death of a patient by suicide on a ward, not engaged with. A year later to the day, another patient did almost exactly the same thing, but survived, was saved by the staff. So there's sort of a reparative. But it was 
I think the sort of profound unconscious processing, we can't be underestimated. And how might that be apparent? Like what might, what, what might we see in terms of disturbance in a team? I think we can see uh, profound disturbances because I think the trouble is once people turn away from thinking together and reflecting, then it becomes very difficult to establish this. And so the more the team doesn't think together, the more they turn away from each other, the more disturbed their behaviour can become. So in some settings, so in inpatient settings, in ward settings, in mental health ward settings, you can get situations with a lot of violence. That that actually there's a, a, a real dangerous expression. And I, and I think that's, I mean, it's, that's also hard to talk about because people don't want to think about the dangerous aspect of, of something. I mean, suicide is a very, it's, it's a, you know, someone's died. This is like a, the real edge of, edge of something stuff as is homicide, which is what I, I, I also do some work on. And these disturbances get into the system and not only in emotional violence, but actually can be in physical violence and reenactment. So it really profoundly disturbs the system. So again, going back to what, you know, where we started a bit about the sadomasochism within our environment, unprocessed trauma. And also my sense of, you know, particularly within mental health services of a lot of avoidance that can go on in relation to patient risk and actually it ends up increasing the risk you know we want to turn away from the reality of this stuff um well can i just can i just point out something even the word risk is an avoidance mm. so what is it we're really saying when we're talking about patient risk what does the, what does risk mean well risk means i'm on the whole i'm very frightened of you killing yourself or killing somebody else but we can't say that. We use the word risk, don't we? But that's what we mean. And we use all sorts of words to to allow us to talk about something we're actually very, very preoccupied with without us knowing that we're very, very preoccupied with it. And also, I think it is about us getting into trouble for managing the unmanageable. Like, where is the risk is that, some, you know, someone does something and, and you get... Yeah, you know, yeah, yes, that's right. Well, I'm very... I'm, I'm, it's about I'm very frightened about something terrible happening to me. Where's the risk? Yes, absolutely. I totally agree with that. So I'm wondering, I'd be curious to hear about the, the work in homicide that you do as well and the links there. So what, what, So we've been running this, what we call a su- the suicide group for consultants, because psychiatrists. I mean, now there are other groups being, being ran. We're actually running one in the heart of the Royal College for all psychiatrists on the effects of patient suicide. And what happened after a little while is we started to have presentations of patient homicide in this group. Um, and what you could see and we, is that this, the consultants that were presenting about patient homicide were really seriously traumatised. And that's not to say in all cases, and, and it's not the case, in, you know, people can hear me and say, well, I wasn't affected, was it? Well, it's, it's very different, different in different cases and different with different people but seeing really high levels of, of uh, trauma with patient homicide. I mean, in some cases, you could see the consultants, um, you know, the organisational response, never mind the sort of trauma of the event. What seemed to be happening in some cases were that the consultants were almost framed for the murder themselves and were treated as though they were the murderer and, and therefore felt sort of almost brought into that themselves and made it incredibly difficult to seek help. And I think that's still the case. So we had a, a group at the Royal College. We started off, we've got the homicide working group and it was almost impossible for the 
the clinicians that have been affected by patient homicide to say anything at all. They could not, it was, they were sort of almost mute. Well, pretty mute actually. Um, so trying to get, bring this out into the open um, and to talk about it, I think we're sort of about eight or nine years behind suicide. And one patient homicide, someone was saying, well, hang on a sec, there's far fewer patient um, homicides than suicide. But one patient homicide affects a very, very wide area. It can be very, very traumatic for an awful lot of people. And it's scary to, to think about, isn't it? It's scary, the, just the word homicide and murder and really terrifying to think that that can be part of your working life when you know you haven't I guess signed up to that well I don't know whether you sort of I don't know whether we don't sign up to it that's the thing that I was thinking you know maybe there's a part of us that does sign up to it there was a consultant I was talking to about um, who now serves with white sharks in Australia (laughs) and you think well maybe there is something of us that put does put ourselves unconsciously in these dangerous situations you know they undoubtedly um to work with these powerful human forces, that there is something in us that drives us to it, puts us in these situations. And is homicide different from the perspective of prevention? Is it, is it something that... Personally, and I'm going to speak totally to my own understanding, I think the internal mental mechanisms aren't wholly different to suicide. And I think, again, the first time someone might know that um, they're at risk of of enacting a homicide is when they do it. So um, so again, I think we have the same problems. And as certainly from talking to people uh, that I have heard talk about it, they have had no clue that their patient was going to do uh, enact this. And it's so terrifying, isn't it? That thought that, you know, we can't stop people killing each other or themselves. But we sort of do know that. Why? I mean, I, I mean, this is what I struggle with. You know, it's like we constantly go back to this. But really, I mean, if you don't work in mental health, you wouldn't really think I, I can predict someone's capacity to, to, to enact a suicide or a homicide. You wouldn't really think mm. that. Mm. I don't think. But do we, but if you don't, do you feel uh, reassured that that's someone's job? Like there's people out there who are doing that. Well, I, I, I think, but I'm not sure that we really believe that they're going to do it. But I think, again, it's a bit like a story. That if we create that story, that means we don't have to think about it. Because if we have to think about it, if we have to move close to think about the unpredictability and the reality of the fact the first that someone might know about this is that they do it, then we could do it. My children could do it. My parents could do it. My husband could do it. You know, my brother could do it. And there, where does that leave us? You know, if, if this is part of being, if part of the human condition, then it can affect all of us, um, which I think we do many, many me- um, mental manoeuvres to try and prevent engaging with. So you've talked about how talking is really important in this um, and being able to voice some of this unspeakable stuff. I'm wondering if... if... I don't know, we can expand on that in terms of their particular ways of talking or, or spaces. Yeah, no, no, are... I think, I think that, so, so what we've been spending a lot of time at the Royal College doing is um, trying to write guidance for me- all, me- all mental health organisations. We've just sort of completed writing guidance for all mental health organisations for the pastoral care of their staff. 
following the suicide of a patient. We're going to be writing one for pastoral care of staff following the homicide of a patient. So we have got, and this and this um, recommendations based on research conducted with the Oxford Centre for Suicide Research. And with the Oxford Centre for Suicide Research, we also have produced a booklet for clinicians after they've had a, a death by suicide, giving them advice and self-care and, and um, recommendations. I mean, what we are, what we've recommended um, in this, uh, I can tell you what we've recommended. I mean, and certainly reflection is a very large part of it. But you see, the trouble is to just say, oh, you've got to reflect in mental health services. Mm, that's not going to work. We're too busy. We're far too busy to be doing whatever this reflection is. Yeah, <laughs> we're not going to do that. Um, so I think there's some way that there's some needs to be. What's worked with the suicide group that we have at the moment, suicide and homicide group, is it's run regularly and it's been run regularly over many, many years. People know it's there. People drop in, they drop out, they come. And what we find is there's a sort of core group of people and then others will come once, tell their story get some relief, go. Some people stay, some people come a few times, people drop in and out. Um, so there's something about having systemically enshrined, is the word that keeps coming to my mind, um, spaces to reflect that, that they do need to be in there before this event happens. You know, there's something about a culture of having these spaces, whatever you want to call them. We've called call this one a suicide. Well, what you're recommending is that all mental health organisations have a suicide group basically so there's something that goes goes on but then you're going to need somebody who is committed to engaging with that and holding that and that has been developed in and some other mental health organisations now by consultant medical psychotherapists and psychiatrists are holding these 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 groups and they seem to be working well and seem to be wanted by the by the mental health environments so we're recommending that um, what we're also recommending is for all mental health organisations is to have a suicide lead. So someone who is actually responsible organisationally for the pastoral. And I make a real effort to um, emphasise the pastoral care. Because what happens in this situation and within mental health services, something moves from pastoral to suicide prevention and making sure we get these actions put in for the whole system. That's it, you know, rather than actually know it's about pastoral care. <laughs> So it's about pastoral lead, um, uh, pastoral senior management support, because I think, again, there's something about, well, actually, just to receive something from your manager saying, look, I'm sorry, you, this patient's died. You know, I hope you're all all right. There's something about those basic, you know, human caring responses that within current health services, you really need to emphasise, put in almost in a protocol. Um you know, to actually make sure that they happen. There's something very important about the relating with families and friends, that there's a, something that can happen very powerfully after a death by suicide is everybody's overwhelmed by anxiety uh, and shock and everybody can fall apart. Everything can sort of fragment. So relationships between families, friends, the organisation, the clinicians can become quite fractured. So what's very important and what we're really putting a lot of emphasis on is the, the um, employment of family liaison officers with all mental health services. So to actually have someone who isn't involved, who can act in a sort of third space um, and support and accompany the families and friends and communicate for them and help liaise. Um, and I think that would be a huge, um, you know, I think what I see with clinicians a lot is they're so 
distressed, but they so want to help the families and friends. They so want to, but they're not in a good state to do that. They're really not. And I think there would be something that would so help them then look after themselves if they knew that someone was looking after the families and friends. And then they could sort of relax a bit and maybe think about what might be right for them. Um, because what you what don't what you often don't want, and, and I've seen some really quite difficult situations where this has happened, is traumatised clinicians rushing to try and engage with a family without some sort of support and containment. Um, because that's often not necessarily what the family want. Um, so there's something about, look, you know, stop, think, you know, a, a reassurance about care for the family, communication, which is very important. You know, we're also thinking about buddy systems. So um, if you've had this experience to be buddied up with someone who's had it in the past and knows a bit about the processes to help you accompany you, and very, very much about um, the group psychological support and individual psychological input. So we've got a we've got a sort of a, a lot of things we've been thinking about in that, but I, I think they all come. I think they all come to the same. You know, it's something to do with trying to enshrine something about pastoral, and what that actually means. <laughs> you know, what does it actually really mean? What's the fundamental components of looking after ourselves? And it's amazing that you have to actually write those down for people. You know, it's like remember to breathe. You know, remember to eat, <laughs> you know, it is like a sort of look after yourself from, right, try and sit down, you know, talk to somebody, um, try and go and reflect in a safe place where you feel you can talk through this. I think there's something important about just acknowledging that this is a thing that, you know, when a patient dies by suicide, it really hurts and it can be devastating. And I'm, I, I think actually that's a kind of just important message in itself because I think there's a lot of people who've experienced that and just haven't stopped to think about the impacts on them or that they're allowed to be impacted. Like everyone just kind of carries on, like you get all the systems, you know, everything, and the investigation goes um, but there isn't a real acknowledgement that it's normal and expected that this is really hard. And then that compounds it, doesn't it? You've not only got the shame of it's my fault, but the shame of, you know, this is hard and everyone else's, you know, life's going on as normal, but I'm struggling mm. here. Really, it can, it can be really devastatingly hard. Uh, and I think it's something called disenfranchised grief is what you're talking about, which is this idea that actually I haven't got a right to grieve in a way. Like there's a hierarchy in grief. There's not enough grief to go around. So it's important the families and the friends have the grief and, the, and, and I haven't got a right. Because if I say that I'm hurt or that I'm grieving as well, somehow that's going to take something away from the validity of the families and friends grief, which is, which is not a sane way to think. It's a bit like there's not enough love to go around, you know. It's a, there's not enough grief to go around. Well, there is. And if you don't, you know, the, I, I think we can again function within a, um, a bit of a disturbed system, which is the patient comes first and the patient comes, which doesn't really make sense because if we don't look after the people caring, then they can't care. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a 
it's a bit like, well, you know, the, what's more important, the mother or the baby? The baby's more important. Well, unfortunately, if the baby doesn't have a healthy mother, it's not going to get very far. So there's something about that. And if we can try and step back from and really try and engage with that this is what's fundamentally important. If we can care for the people that are caring, then the care, you know, people will be cared for in a way that is better. You know, if people have a capacity for life, joy, you know, if a non-depressed mother is is a, a mother that you want. So what, what message would you want to give someone who might be listening to this and has been affected by by suicide through their work and maybe their organisation doesn't have yet all these things in place. We've produced a lot of resources. So you're firstly, you're not on your own. You're really not on your own and you can feel really on your own. And whatever the narrative is you're creating in your mind, and I can promise you, you will be creating one where you are to blame, you are not. That is not saying that's a delusional narrative. Um, and uh, it is just to hold on to that. There is also quite a lot of resources now in a way there never was when I in 2008 and we've produced a lot. They are on the Royal College website and you can download them. Um, and they also signpost you to all sorts of other resources. And um, we've got videos of um, clinicians talking about the effect that a suicide of patient has on them. Um, the American, we've linked up with the American. There's the clinician survivors of suicide um, in the United States, huge organisation now, I think. So there's this, this sort of raised awareness of the, of the fact that this is a, a very powerful, tra- can be a very powerful trauma for people. So there's a lot of resources out there um, and a lot of help out there. And do uh, reach out, do communicate about it. It is through the communication, it's through talking about it that you will feel better. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please do share it with others, post about it on social media, or leave a rating and review. I'd love to connect with you, so do come and find me on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also sign up to my mailing list to keep up to date with future episodes and get useful psychology advice and tips straight to your inbox. All the links are in the show notes. Thanks again, and until next time, Take good care.